You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Well, as Steve mentioned, we're continuing the series we launched last week called No Perfect People. And we discussed that no matter how far from God you are or how unworthy you may feel compared to the people around you, you still matter to him. The problem is similar for all of us. Every single one of us have the same problem. It's sin. Paul says to the church in Rome... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, there, is, there are no perfect people, which means we all need a Savior. That being true, there are still are people who are very self-confident in how righteous they live their lives. You and I know some of those people. In fact, you and I might be some of those people They work very hard at keeping all the directives in Scripture. And that's awesome. Because the Bible outlines the life we should live in order to have deep purpose and deep meaning and, and deep contentment. But these people, they have this tendency to go a step too far. And they begin to believe that they somehow personally are the reason why they're righteous based upon their behavior. They forget that they're not perfect and that they need, too need a Savior. True righteousness comes only through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on the cross. I grew up in a relatively small church in central Iowa. And our church had a lady that was our version of the church lady. You know who I'm talking about? Some of you, some of you are familiar with that character that uh, Dana Carvey made famous on SNL. He made a, she was known for a condescending spiritual superiority. And our church lady, she was a lot the same way. She gave the impression that she had it all together spiritually. She'd often make others feel spiritually inferior when they were around her. And she could really dish out judgment. Now she didn't do that to me because I went to Bible college. I was special. But ask my wife if she did it to other people. It's not funny. It's not. I think she thought that she was very, very close to being perfect. And thus she acted like that was true. Well, Jesus, in our text today, he confronts a group of religious leaders who were a lot like that. They were largely self-righteous. Not all of them in this group were that way. But the majority of them lived this life of theirs based upon the fact that they thought their performance was perfect. And they'd even go a step further to make sure that everyone saw just how righteous they were. People were in awe of their spiritual greatness. Well, in Jesus' last public talk, we can, you can read it in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, He gave a scathing denunciation of these self-righteous religious leaders who paraded around in their regal robes with their heads held high, giving the appearance of their holiness. 
And some of the regular folks in that day were really shocked at what Jesus said because they considered the scribes and the Pharisees to be very righteous. But Jesus exposes their fraud. In fact, seven times in this talk in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Jesus gives the same warning. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Seven times. Anytime somebody says something in Scripture on a multiple number of times, they're doing it for emphasis. Jesus is making a very, very strong point here. It doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild here, does it? No, he looked into the faces of these men who made their living allegedly serving God, and he exposes their hypocrisy. Why was it that Jesus got so fired up about this? Well, he despises self-righteousness, and he saw it in them because, verse 3 says, they say things and do not do them. And then when they actually did do something that was meaningful, verse 5 says, they did all their deeds to be noticed by man. In other words, they publicly talked the talk, but they privately didn't walk the walk. Might be getting close to some of us now. They appeared spiritually strong, but deep down they were actually carnal. They were sinful, and they lacked spiritual power. They sounded righteous, but they were actually devoid of any spiritual substance. There was very little fruit in their lives. Here's why this matters today. If you and I are completely honest with ourselves, we would have to own up to varying degrees of hypocrisy as well. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus lived perfect when it comes to righteousness. He was full of integrity and he was free of hypocrisy. It's easy in a moment like this to think about someone who you think is hypocritical, right? I want you to kind of dial that back this morning. And I'd like you to look inwardly And to see if any of this applies to you. We all know somebody who's hypocritical. All right? You know me. I'm a hypocrite. I stand up here like I have it all together. And I don't. Please don't ask anyone that knows me closely. The truth is, Jesus is the only one that had it all together. So, he would naturally be our model. And that's what we want to look at. All of us have the capacity to be a hypocrite. All of us. So let's look internally. Now, one of the key points that we have this morning is this. Hypocrisy needs to be exposed. And now again, we're not talking about other people's lives right now. We're just talking about our own lives. So I want to challenge you to look internally, and if there is hypocrisy in your own life, I want you to, to make note of that, because we need to address it. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses to describe the scribes and the Pharisees is hypocrites. It's a Greek word, and you can see where we get the word hypocrite from. This term actually was a term that they used in the theater. You see, the theater was one of those centers of Greek culture during Jesus' time. Hypocrites is the picture of a Greek actor who is playing multiple roles during a certain play. 
He disguises these different roles using a series of masks, which he would change each time he went off the stage. One mask might be smiling, the other mask might be a sad face. And it's not surprising that the actor would be called a hypocrite. Over time, this same word took on a more negative meaning, and eventually it turned into the word that Jesus uses to pinpoint the double-masked. That's what it means, double-masked, or what we might call two-faced behavior that defined the scribes and the Pharisees. They claimed to be one way, but they actually lived another way. Pretending to be what you aren't is consistently condemned in Scripture, especially when we're claiming that we're something that we're not, that we're greater than we actually are. Every time God addresses it, he soundly rebukes it. Let me give you an example of this. In Isaiah, the 29th chapter, we read these words. This is Isaiah writing the words of God. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. God hates hypocrisy. He just absolutely despises it. Why is this, why is this a big deal? Why should this matter? Here's the crux of this. Nothing does more harm to the cause of Christ than hypocritical behaviors modeled by people who call themselves Christians. That behavior, hypocrisy, damages the church's credibility. Now again, there's a tendency, there's this, this temptation to think about somebody beyond me, the scope of me. But I want us to look at ourselves this morning. Paul gives an example here that he wrote to the church in Rome. It's a simple verse. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Romans 12, 9. Paul urged their actions in that simple verse, to match their words. His point was simple. Make sure that your love is authentic. Don't be a phony. Mean what you say. Say what you mean. All the while, be sure your life matches up with what you say you believe. And if it doesn't, it's okay to admit it. I mean, you don't have to stand on a stage like this and announce it, but admit it, especially admit it to yourself. Admit that you made a mistake. Hypocrisy occurs when we mask sin. We hide our sin. We oftentimes do it behind a stack of religious words or religious actions. That's what we call being an imposter. Listen to what Jesus has to say to you this morning about hypocrisy. And allow him to have his way in how you and I conduct ourselves each and every day. Now, here's Jesus' take. We find it in Matthew, the sixth chapter. So if you have a Bible or you want to turn your your phone or your tablet and follow along. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges his followers 
to live a life of authenticity. And he punctuates his calls to genuine holiness with a bold encouragement to be authentic, to be real. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's talking here about inauthentic performance. If your life, you perceive it as being a performance that other people see, you're headed in the wrong direction from the very start. You and I, we're to perform for an audience of one. That's for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, we want to be an encouragement. We want to disciple and mentor people around us. But we're not performing for them. Because the truth is, you're not going to set a great example all the time. They need to know that. Jesus gets very practical in this this sermon. He says that there are basically, he, he addresses the basic three uh, ways that people practiced righteousness. There are three basic ways that every Jew practiced righteousness. One was giving to the poor, the second was praying, and the third was fasting. Now, Jesus never disputes these three disciplines, not at all. In fact, you get the sense he's, affor- he's affirming these. But his concern was that, those, that these deeds of righteousness that people would practice had become public forums for hypocritical conduct by the religious leaders of his day. They hid evil motives behind godly-looking masks. In place of that hypocrisy, Jesus gave us instructions on the right way to live each and every day these spiritual disciplines. And I want us to take a few moments and look at each one of them. The first one is giving, giving to the poor. Jesus deals with the issue of giving. And and he's going to look at how they've taken this practical practice of righteousness and hijacked it to make it hypocritical. Look look at verse 2. This is where he starts. He says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Today, Jesus might say it in a different way. He might say, don't expect a brass plate to be mounted on the outside of a building that you gave a chunk of money to in order to house the homeless. Or don't expect that your name is going to be somehow in the headlines because you gave a a bunch of resources to a feeding program for those who are less fortunate. Don't give to make yourself look good. Jesus actually offers a better way. Look what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Give generously, give gladly, Give sacrificially, but keep it to yourself, he says. Your gift is nobody's business but yours and God's, period. But if you let someone else know, Jesus clues us in here, then you immediately have your total reward. 
You forfeit the opportunity to receive anything greater from the Lord than when you arrive in heaven. God always notices, and he always rewards faithful, sacrificial giving. But when you insist on announcing it in a self-righteous way, then that's all the reward that there is. There's a promise that kind of summarizes this in Hebrews 6. It's verse 10. It says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. That's a promise you can trust. God's not going to forget. You don't have to keep track of this stuff. God keeps track of it. So, if you're seated in here this morning and you realize that you're part of this fellowship on a regular basis, one of the things that's true is that you are surrounded by many faithful believers who have given and given and given and never let anyone know about it. In fact, you might be one of those people. And just from my heart to yours, we are very grateful for that. Especially during the summer months, we are very, very grateful for your faithfulness. Each Sunday, you rub shoulders with some of the great givers of our day. And you'll never know about it. You'll never know that. Because they don't say anything. But God knows it, and he never forgets it. So don't lose sight of that. Well, the way that they practice righteousness, there was a second way that they practice righteousness, and it got hijacked by the hypocrites, is through prayer. Through prayer. Look what he says in verse 6. Verse 6 says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Chuck Swindoll, in his book, Tough Stuff, writes that in Jesus' day, prayer had degenerated significantly. In fact, he gives a list of five things that had happened to prayer. And I, I thought it was kind of insightful because this degeneration of prayer made it a lot easier for people to use prayer as a means to draw attention to themselves. Listen to what Swindoll says about how prayer had degenerated. First of all, he said, prayer had become a formal exercise rather than a free expression. Now, what does that mean? It means that there existed these official prayers that had been written out for all these different occasions. So all you had to do was read the prayer. Prayers had become standardized, routine, monotonous. Number of years ago, I went to a conference and they had this uh, this workshop that I went to every day for a number of days in a row. And one of the, one of the days, I think it was the third or, or fourth day that I was there, the the uh, the lady who was leading the conference, she was leading my workshop. She came out and she had this sheet of paper and she said, "I have this prayer that was written by so and so like 150 some years ago." And she said, "I would like to use this prayer today." And she just read it. And I'm not even sure if we closed our eyes or we had to. You know, if it was a prayer written 150 years ago. How does he know what our needs are, our thoughts are today? And so it was Brandon. And when it was over with, listen, this is my heart, okay? I thought, I'm not sure I actually talked to God right there. You know, I mean, there were some great words and some cool thoughts. But as far as an expression on my heart, how did this guy 150 some years ago know what we needed today? 
Now, maybe it dialed it in for a lot of people, and I was just not very mature at the time, and that is very possible, okay? Don't laugh. That is very hurtful, okay? But when prayers become standardized, when you just write them out and then you just read them, there can be a serious disconnect between what you say and what is in your heart. And that's what was happening in Jesus' day. Prayer, secondly, had grown ritualistic rather than authentic in its expression. Most of the Jews in Jesus' day prayed three times a day. The Pharisees had put into practice some rigid routines of prescribed places and set times for prayer to happen. There was very little spontaneity or spirit-initiated prayer. Thirdly, prayers were long and wordy. The more eloquent and flowery, the better. (laughs) Fourth, prayers were filled with repetitions of meaningless cliches. They sounded good, but they just lacked meaning. And then number five, praying became a cause for pride rather than an opportunity to express humble faith in God. Prayer was more about being noticed talking to God than actually talking to God. People would stand on street corners and they would pray out loud so that people would notice them. Here's the question I thought was relevant for us. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Has your prayer life somehow kind of degenerated some over the years, or maybe over the last few weeks or over the last few months. It's easy to develop bad patterns and unholy habits when it comes to prayer. And that's what had happened in Jesus' day. So Jesus talked straight to the people about what was happening within the context of one of the sacred, tremendous privileges that we have which is prayer. And he tells them simply how they should pray. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Jesus indicates here, Prayer is basically a private matter. Now, we pray publicly, but the true purpose of prayer is between you and God. It's private. A lot like giving. It's between you and God. Jesus gave us an example of how to pray. In verses 9 through 13, he gives us five verses, and we call that the Lord's Prayer. It's the model prayer, right? But there's not a a magical facet in that. I mean, some people just read that prayer and they think, oh, I've prayed. But that can be a prayer. The model prayer can actually become a disconnect from a person's heart if all they do is read it. There's a powerful example of how simple a prayer can be in our communication with God. Prayer should be spontaneous. It should be real. It should be personal. It should be straight talk. It should be honest. But it's not to be for show. It's not. Which brings us to the third, the third thing that they practiced when they practiced righteousness. And yet the hypocrites had hijacked that as well. And that was the discipline of fasting. We read in verse 16, when you fast, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now fasting, for some of you, maybe that that term or that discipline is foreign. It simply refers to abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Setting aside a period of time that you don't eat in order to grow closer to God. You're depending on the Lord to provide for you in that moment. William Barclay, who's a great uh, Bible scholar, wrote about the practice of fasting among the Jewish people during this time. And he gives some really good insight. Listen to what he says. The Jewish days of fasting were Monday and Thursday. These were, these were directed by the leaders. These were market days also. And the result was that those who were brazenly fasting, fasting to be noticed, would on those days have a bigger audience to see and admire their piety or their holiness. There were so many who took deliberate steps so that others could not miss the fact that they were fasting. They walked through the streets with hair unkept and disheveled, with clothes deliberately soiled and disarrayed. They even went to the length of deliberately whitening their faces to accentuate their paleness. They want to be noticed. They wanted people to know that they were fasting because they were spiritual. Don't miss the fact that I'm fasting. They wanted people to see just how spiritually deep they were. Showing off spiritually is blatant hypocrisy. Which is precisely why Jesus warned against it. Listen to what Jesus says as a result of that kind of behavior going on in the culture. This is from the message translation. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you're doing. He'll reward you well. One key truth about fasting, and it's a consistent theme all morning long, is that it is primarily a private thing. Now, we can, we can fast with a group of people if we have a common purpose that we're wanting to have God, you know, to seek God and to pursue Him on. But as a rule... Fasting is largely a private discipline. It's only between you and God. And it's most effective when no one else knows about it. So we should live, not as hypocrites, rather live as authentic followers of Jesus. That's the life that God rewards. Did you notice that? In every one of those, these private connections with God is what God honors. It's what he values. It's what he rewards. So how do we, how do we tackle this issue? How do we set ourselves in, on, on a course in such a way that we can kind of deal with this as opposed to, you know, just allow it to fester and grow and develop in our lives? Hypocrisy, that is. I want to give you, as we close, three quick, three quick action steps that you can take to help overcome being a hypocrite. I wish it were this simple, but it does, it, we can boil it down a little. Here, the first is this. Expose hypocrisy in your life. So be honest about it. You have to be honest about it. 
If you're living a double-masked life or a two-faced life, admit it. Now, you don't have to stand up here, as I said earlier, and announce it to everybody. But at least admit it to yourself. This is an area where I'm kind of a hypocrite. The truth of the matter is the first step to changing your behavior is always admitting that there's a problem. If you keep denying it or you keep ignoring it, you're never going to fix it. Secondly, practicing hypocrisy comes naturally. If you don't know that, that's part of the flesh. So resist it. Decide today. When it comes up, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist it. We get hooked on hypocrisy because it looks impressive. Wow, that was such a great sermon. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. I'm a deeply spiritual person. Nobody ever says that to me. Okay, sometimes they do. But I hope I never answer it that way. Ever. But there's a tendency because it looks impressive and we like the strokes that we get. Whatever area of life it is that we're tending to be hypocritical in. So we need to be intentionally militant and diligent about resisting it in our own lives. Number three, resisting hypocrisy is difficult. So stay at it. Stay at it. And here's the truth. We need others in our lives to help us in order to keep it real, to be authentic. We need people who have been given permission to speak truth into our lives. People who we know love us and desire to see us grow. And they have the very best of of results in mind for us. Not somebody who's going to tear into us to prove they're more spiritual than we are. One of the best places for that to, to, to germinate, to grow, is in the context of biblical community. That's why we have all these classes, life groups, discipleship groups, Bible studies all around here. There are all these different formats for different schedules and different people at different seasons of life. And we need people in those contexts to encourage us in order to drop the masks that we hide behind, that we sometimes pretend that that's who we are when we know deeply that's not who we are. Winning any personal battle has to start by admitting that there's a problem. So admit it. Listen, the truth is, everybody in here is a hypocrite at some point or another, right? Somewhere, someplace, sometime. So if you're faking it spiritually, or you're putting on some kind of Christian show, and you know that on the inside you're really a mess, you're just trying to mask over all that, it's time to stop the charade. Just stop it today. That'll only happen when you give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work. And when you do, he will begin the process of delivering you and putting you on a path toward genuine freedom from hypocrisy. It's not easy. It's not. I wish I could tell you that it was. I still find myself, after walking with God for over 40-some years of my life, that there aren't times that I still kind of like the strokes that come from being important somebody thinking that I'm a big deal. The truth is, I'm just like you. Overcoming hypocrisy's destructive power begins when we're completely honest 
So will you let the Holy Spirit help you with this? Not just to reveal where the hypocrisy exists in your life, but also to help you to live this authentic Christ-like life. My hope is that this place would be known in this community as a place where people are authentic, where we're real. And the only way we can do that, the only way we'll ever pull that off is if we are. So we have to slay hypocrisy. God has a purpose for your life. And one of the ways it gets derailed is through this whole cancer of hypocrisy. Let's trust him today to reveal that in our lives and do something about it so that we can be real like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for the reminder this morning that your word speaks volumes about how we can take things that were meant for good and we can use them in a way that they become a way that kind of spotlights our self-promotion or our self-righteousness. And Lord, we just come to you and ask for your forgiveness. Every one of us are guilty of this in one way or another. The only hope that we have is, is through a Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, expose the hypocrisy in our lives. Help us to see it clearly so that we can do something about it. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest and to resist it and to, to stay consistent, to be authentic to the best of our battle in this, in this life with the flesh. Lord, I know that there are some here today that um, never recognize the fact that they are sin in their lives or that, that they need a Savior, and every one of us need that. I pray today would be the day they would take that step, that they would embrace you for forgiveness and hope and realize that it's not about other people's hypocrisy, it's about their own, and that you will wash that sin away. You will cleanse them and make them white as snow because of what Jesus did on the cross. I pray, God, that today would be the day that they would take that most important step. God, help us to be a place that is known for its authenticity and that we not take pride in that, but we would, we would find great satisfaction in knowing that we're striving to live like Jesus did. And by your spirit, we will find that that is possible on our own accord. Probably not. So help us to be that kind of church, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing. And uh, during this time, if you have a need, if you want to talk to somebody about taking that most important step of accepting Jesus, I'm going to be right down front. I'd love to talk to you about that. Let's stand together. Let's worship him. Come if you have a need.